Hey nurses out there, you know how important it is to stay on top of the latest skills and advancements in your specialty area. At the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, we offer a range of online post-degree certificate programs that will further specialization in the field. From PEDS to organizational leadership to psych and nurse educator, we've got you covered. Learn more and apply at nursing.jhu.edu slash on the pulse. Hi, I'm Tamar Rodney, and you're listening to On The Pulse, a podcast from the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. On this podcast, we take a deep dive into the experiences of frontline providers and researchers. We explore their insights and invaluable stories of how healthcare works in today's world. On today's show, we'll explore the topic of mental health, particularly within the younger age groups and as the continued need for service persists. Our guests today are Dr. Debbie Gross, the Leonard and Helen Salmon Endowed Professor in Psychiatric and Mental Health Nursing at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing, and Marcus Henderson, a PhD student at the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing and a fellow of the Samson Minority Fellowship Program. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much for having us, Dr. Rodney. Wonderful. So could we start off by evaluating what would you say mental health looks like right now in our country? In general, both children and their parents are experiencing a lot of stress and anxiety, sadness, frustration, and there's data to support this. Um, Among young children, uh, generally two to eight years old, one in six children are having a mental developmental or uh, behavioral disorder. And according to recent CDC data, about 37% of high school students are reporting poor mental health. And Amazingly, 44% reported feeling persistently sad or hopeless in the past year. So I'd say overall children's mental health is not in a good place, Um, but there is, um, there's also a lot of source of resilience going on. People are now reconnecting with friends. They're re-engaging in social events that are bringing a sense of connection and affirmation. And these are the things that we lost during the pandemic and then we need to regain. And I think all that I would add is that it's quite similar for adolescents as well. And Dr. Gross alluded to kind of some things that are happening with high school students, but clearly the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated an already prevalent mental health crisis in this country, not only for young people, but for adults as well. And I think that the impacts of the pandemic are yet to be realized over the long term. So what is that going to look like for children transitioning to adolescence? And what does that look like for adolescents transitioning to young adulthood? I think there's work undergoing now to understand those impacts, but we know that this is over the life course. So how can we think differently today to begin investing to prevent some of those long-term things that we know are going to happen anyway? Those numbers are quite scary, but um, I'm also hearing a message of hope that although we don't know the full impact, um, we are doing this proactively. So thank you for reminding us of that. Um, And if we could go back to young children, how would you say things have changed in the last five or 10 years? And what are you seeing now in regards to that change? So that's a great question. Uh, And it's a really interesting one. Because our team does a lot of research in Baltimore City Public Schools, I've talked quite a bit with uh, pre-K and um, and grade school staff and leadership. And about eight or nine years ago, I remember asking some principals what kept them up at night. And they said third grade reading. And about four years later, uh, before the pandemic, I asked the same question. And they said children's mental health. 
and and that's and that's what they were struggling with then, and they are most definitely struggling with it now. Children's well-being has suffered a great deal, particularly for those living in under-resourced communities, and that have been really hit hard by community violence, trauma, and personal losses from the pandemic. We have a lot of children who are grieving, a lot of families that are grieving. Um, young children have fewer tools for communicating and managing their emotions, which means that they're more likely to act them out behaviorally. And uh, this makes it a lot harder for children to learn and really hard for parents and teachers to know how to help them. So for all children, but especially young children, the extent to which parents are physically and emotionally available to them are so important. And right now, most parents I know are physically and emotionally exhausted. Parents of children with a disability who rely enormously on support services for their children were particularly drained because they lost those services and supports during the pandemic. And so to that extent, much has changed over the last two to three years. Whatever we do, we have got to have a multi-generational perspective on the solution. And, and as you're speaking, I'm thinking, you know, if we don't address mental health in their young children, this is going to continue into adolescence. And Marcus, I'm just going to switch to you. When we think of adolescents, which some of them might have been carrying some of these symptoms as children unaddressed, how do you see their current state of mental health and has it changed in the last couple of years? Well, I think pre-COVID, we know that there was a significant increase in adolescents needing mental health services broadly, specifically related to internalizing problems like anxiety, depression, and suicidality. Some data pre-COVID reports that an estimated 32% of adolescents experience anxiety-related disorders, one in six experience depression or a major depressive episode. And we know that's only increased since the wake of the pandemic with a 31% increase in ED visits for uh, mental health-related issues, and most of those being for suicide attempts. And we know pre-COVID and now suicide still remains the second leading cause of death among adolescents in the United States. And that crisis clearly uh, is, is, is continuing. I was also looking at some recent data related to COVID specifically that one in five adolescents report that the pandemic has significantly impacted their mental health. So we have the information that young people are reporting that this experience for the last two years and continuing is significantly impacting them. And I know a little bit later, we're going to talk about some of the potential solutions for that, but it's not getting better. And it's not just about addressing mental health for young people. It's about addressing their social determinants of health, because we know it's not just the biological factors that impact their predisposition for a mental health issue, but it's the environmental factors that are probably equally, if not more important in some cases. So it's about their family experience. It's about the relationship with their parents, their school, their community, their peer relationships, community violence that Dr. Gross talked about. So it's so many other things. And I think our window of opportunity closes when we only say mental health, because there's so many other factors that impact children and adolescents' well-being. And if we intervene in those other places, we know that it will impact positively their mental health. Thank you for saying that. So not only are we supposed to be thinking that as a multi-generational problem and an issue we should solve, it's as well what you're saying is looking at the whole person and not just mental health, although it's incredibly important in our topic. Um, but thank you for that reminder. It's um, critical for us to have a full view of what we're talking about. 
So let us go back to this issue of how we term mental health and how it, it's framed before the pandemic and after the pandemic. Um, prior to the pandemic, there were also significant mental health problems. And what would you say, in your opinion, drove some of these problems prior to the pandemic? I think it's many things. I think it's enormous income inequality and what happens in communities that have no resources or have so few resources or can't get access to resources. It's decisions that are made that don't include the needs and the health of communities. Um, and there's only so much you can hang on when people are losing hope. I think violence, I think social media that plays up a lot of the ills of what's going on in our world and misinformation, but sometimes accurate information. And so it, it becomes more difficult for uh, communities to pull together and families to pull together. I think there's a lot going on simultaneously and it, it filters down to kids and kids don't have the ability to change it. They're just all, what they're feeling is, is the experience of what is going on around them. I would agree with everything you said. The only thing that I'll add, and I think throughout the COVID pandemic, we've said that we have these dueling pandemics, COVID-19 and racism. But racism has always been plaguing our country. So I think those experiences, especially for the populations that I cared for when I worked in the inpatient psych unit, predominantly brown and black children, you heard those stories of the daily discrimination that those children and their parents and their families experience. So to your point, it's not just everything that's happening around the child, the increases in violence, poverty, and all those other things, but it's also, we know that children also take on their parents' stress. So the kids have their own level of stress, and then when they're in the home, they just vicariously take on everything that their parents are taking on, which kind of just has this double whammy effect, if you will, that we see clinically, because a lot of children, when you're talking with them, they're talking as if they're, they're their parent. Well, we're struggling to get food on the table. We're struggling to you know, pay our bills. And it's like, you're the child. So why are you concerned about how are you going to make money to do this? Because you're not even old enough to work. But we know children take on those experiences from their parents. And the other thing I was at, we add is we live in a country that has historically underinvested in children and families. Yes. We have one of the highest childhood poverty rates in the world. So if you don't invest in children and families, how are you going to expect them to flourish and thrive in their community? I would so add to that because even for healthcare that we think is so well covered for children is actually un is not covered sufficiently. And I think that the power base that children have is too small. Important. And I, I feel a sense of almost wanting a sigh of relief sometimes when we discuss topics like this because it's complicated and it's compounded by so many different issues but the schools have been one place that we've consistently identified as a place to solve some of these or at least to start um, addressing them and I wanted to bring your attention to an article that was in the New York Times discussing the potential for expanding mental health services in schools. It's a divided issue for persons understanding the importance of even dressing it, and then the reservations about parental rights and wanting to be involved in their child's care. So both of these sides have a valid point to it, but our question 
that we'd like you to address is what kind of mental health services now exist in schools, that's one. And then how can we provide these services that can be also inclusive of parents and honoring their rights? So schools are a primary source of mental health services for kids. Um, in a recent survey, I read that um, over half of schools in the country provide diagnostic mental health evaluations for children. And somewhere around 44% uh, provide direct mental health services for children. So they are, they're, they're a natural place where children are. And they're, so from that standpoint, it is a perfect place for, and where students spend most of their time during their waking hours, it's, it's a perfect place for the mental health services to be embedded. But we cannot offer these services without input and involvement from parents. And, and parents have to get to know and trust the people who are talking to their children about very personal matters. So when you're introducing mental health services in schools, it has to be done thoughtfully, carefully, and with sensitivity. And really parents cannot be separated from the, from the decisions that are made from the people who are managing the mental health services. They need to be involved. What I would add is, you know, having worked with adolescents and their parents, there's really an educational gap related to kind of what mental health is and the stigma related to mental health, especially among communities of color. We know that Hispanic youth are less likely to have their, their mental health needs met. We know that Asian youth are less likely to even access mental health services. So it's also a great opportunity in schools to help educate parents about the importance of supporting their child's mental health and well-being and what that means. It's not my child reaches out and they're experiencing sadness and frustration. Now they're labeled with depression. And what does that mean? You know, what's the stigma and all the issues I'm going to see after the fact because my child's been now labeled, but framing it in the context of your child's reaching out for help. And if we help them now, this is what we're going to prevent in the future. But there's so much stigma related to reaching out for help. And, and parents require, you know, a lot of support in how to navigate that and understanding their needs to develop interventions that support them better. You know, thank you, Marcus. And we often say it takes a village. We usually talk about just raising the child, but maybe this is one of the truest sense of saying it does take a village and the school is a part of that village, but the parents also need to be involved. And maybe if we look at that, that everybody's in this for the right reasons, that's one way to go. From, from your perspective, what else could schools do to address what are sometimes growing mental health needs among children? I think it's important to acknowledge that there are many therapeutic interventions that can be provided to students and their families to support mental health and well-being. And they're not psychotherapy or psychopharmacology, and they may not require a mental health provider. As a result, they may be a lot less concerning for parents and a lot less stigmatizing. So there are things like mindfulness programming and uh, relaxation and problem-solving skills that you can teach students. And because they don't require the skills of a mental health provider and have universal relevance, they're also going to be cheaper and less stigmatizing for students and for families uh, to engage with. I think we need to think about mental health and well-being, as you said, in a much broader and more holistic way. And finally, I think schools should be offering more programming for parents focused on supporting their confidence and skills and mental well-being. Children need parents who feel good about themselves and feel connected to a community that cares about them and their children. And so I think that there's a tendency for schools to think their focus is the student, but the student is embedded in a family and education is really just one metric of health. And so I think we need to think more broadly about 
the real role that schools play in supporting mental health and well-being. We certainly learned that when schools closed during the pandemic and the loss of services. So I think, I think there's so much more that we could do that don't require a mental health workforce that at this point is, you know, too stretched and uh, has their own. It doesn't have. There aren't enough people in the workforce now to begin with. I truly like that. You know, offering programming to parents because there's an assumption that they know and that is a part of a stigma not knowing and not knowing what to do and certainly schools could be more involved and Marcus what about from your perspective what do you think schools could do to provide continuing support I mean I totally agree with Dr. Gross that there's so many other types of interventions that don't require medication or formalized mental health treatment that could be used to support children adolescents and their parents you know, I think about how one in four schools in the United States don't have a school nurse. Less than 50% of schools in the United States don't have a full-time school nurse. So we've historically undervalued and underinvested in roles like school nurses, school social workers, school counselors, school psychologists. And we know they play an important role in providing this level of support to children and their families. So how do we think about how we strategically invest in these roles, putting these types of professionals in schools and, and managing their workload to do this uh, would, be, would be one way that I think about it. And you know, Dr. Gross mentioned some things. And the other thing I think about is school and youth connectedness. We know that when children feel connected to their school community and they feel that their teachers and school staff support them, that supports their development. We know that when you feel connected to their peers, their family, and their community, that supports positive psychosocial development. So again, these are other types of interventions that improve their perceived connectedness to them to themselves in many ways, because there's always those self-reflective pieces, um, because we know adolescents are trying to figure out who they are as a person, and it's our job to help them figure that out but it's also our job to help them figure that out in the larger context of the environments in which they experience in, in, in their daily life. But one thing I'll add is, you know, it's really easy. And I think we could both go through a laundry list of what else schools might be able to do. But I think it comes down to, um, and Dr. Gross alluded to this about making services that, you know, are more cost effective, but we have to invest in schools. And again, we are a country that does not invest in education does not invest in children. So we really have to put our money where our mouth is. So if we want children to grow up to be healthy and well, then we need to invest in these types of interventions and programs and professionals that are going to support children to do exactly that. All these things would be great, but we really need the funds behind it and equitable allocation of those funds. Because my first question is, great, you just designated a pot of money, but what school districts and schools are getting those? Because we know there are long historic inequities, and I'm from Philadelphia, so I can tell you the inequities between how the Philadelphia school district is financed and all the local schools. For example, a local suburban school district, they get twelve, almost $12,000 per student, where on average in Philadelphia, they get between five dollars to $6,000 per student. That's inequity. So how are we allocating those funds to also our schools with the highest need? The one thought that while you're speaking, Marcus, that came to my mind is that 
it's way more than academics school setting is it's really when we say it's a place for them to learn and grow but also producing healthy adolescents that will go on to be healthy adults and i do not mind the laundry list is literally what we need to hear and the ways that we can solve this problem but i wanted to pivot just a little bit so there are things that we know we could do better but there's a part that usually isn't spoken of because that's where the work gets done at least that's what i think and that's where research comes into play and both of your mental health experts and i wanted to just give an opportunity to share um, some of the work that you're doing now in research for mental health related solutions is what i'm calling them but i'd love to hear about the work that you're doing oh thank you i well actually i was going to talk a little bit about the, the work we're doing with the Chicago Parent Program, which is an, an evidence-based parenting program that is specifically designed to support parents raising young children in under-resourced communities, focused on two to eight-year-olds. So the intervention is designed, first and foremost, to strengthen parents' confidence and skills and help them to tailor them to, to their goals for their children. But the other thing it does is it's a program that strengthens communities. It's really designed to uh, fit well into community agencies that support families. And uh, a number of years ago, we were very fortunate to partner with Baltimore City Public Schools and a wonderful community organization called the Fund for Educational Excellence. And we studied the implementation of the Chicago Parent Program in Baltimore City Schools, and it was very successful. And at the end of the study, the schools ended up wanting to continue the program and it was managed by the community organization. And it's actually continuing on and they, uh, the district is helping to pay for it. And it's been expanded to more schools. And we're currently doing a study to understand a little bit more about the parents who sign up for the program in, in the schools. And we've particularly been looking at the extent to which the parents themselves have been exposed to uh, childhood adversities and traumas. One of the things that our team has been particularly affected by is how many parents report having had significant childhood traumas, including physical and emotional abuse, and witnessing a great deal of violence growing up. And what's so impressive to me is that over half of the parents report being, being physically abused as children, and here they are signing up for a parenting program at their child's school, sometimes enrolling multiple times because they want a better life for their children. And I think that's so important to, to sort of talk about is because first of all, this is, this is a universal program. It's offered to any parent of a child in that school and within that age group. And parents are signing up because, because of their own desire to strengthen their role as a parent and help their children. And it's because I think it's offered in a very non-stigmatizing way. And because it's in the schools, it's also at the same time building up stronger relationships between parents and schools and parents with each other. So it's really having a big impact on schools, on parents, and on children. And it's research that was done, completed, and left in the community and now managed by the community. So I think the number of things that's gone on with this, this project has been really made me very happy to be at Hopkins. I'd be happy too, because it sounds like we're leaving something tangible that's going to last literally a lifetime. And that's amazing. And Marcus, I would love to hear about the work that you're doing. Yes. Well, I don't think we've mentioned this, but Dr. Gross is also my PhD program advisor. And if you can't tell, I also have an interest in how we can better support parents 
uh, of children with mental health issues. So for me, I'm particularly interested in the adolescent population in, in regards to adolescent suicide prevention. So my research interest is in how can we uh, better understand the experiences and needs of parents caring for children who have been hospitalized for acute suicidality. So what is it about their, their self-efficacy to engage in suicide prevention activities, to identify suicide risk behaviors, to help us kind of target intervention to better understand what, if any, knowledge gaps, skill gaps, or needs that we're just not aware of as a mental health system to better support parents. Because oftentimes a child is discharged from the hospital and it's thank you so much, keep your child safe, make sure they don't uh, you know, harm themselves again. And hopefully you'll be able to get into the outpatient provider within two weeks. And we know the systemic issues that happen you know, between discharge and if they even make it to that first appointment. So that discharge period post-hospitalization is such a vulnerable period of adjustment, not only for the child, but for the parent as well, because they're trying to figure out how do I keep my child safe? How do I ensure that my child doesn't engage in self-harm or attempt suicide again? How do I ask my child about how they're feeling? How do I encourage them to cope with how they're feeling? So I'm very interested in kind of exploring parents' perceived self-efficacy to engage in some of these activities and then target intervention to better support parents in 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 that regard. Thank you, Marcus. And I see the smile in your face, and I hope our listeners are hearing that come through about how exciting this is for you. And it's the little things that we need big answers to, and that's literally what you're doing. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Any final words from both of you on how we could improve mental health? And then just in general, what should we know? I think the one thing that I've been thinking about through the conversation is, you know, when often when we talk about mental health, it kind of does, as you alluded to, get to kind of this sad, somber conversation about all of these very deep personal issues that negatively impact people every day. But one thing that excites me about working with young people is that they have a great sense of agency. And we don't use young people enough. We don't use their voices enough to advocate for the investments that they need as children and adolescents to thrive in their communities. So when I see all of these young people who are going to their state legislatures or going to their local municipalities and saying, this is what's happening in my school and we need to address this because X, Y, and Z, I see so much hope. So for me, while in my PhD, I'm focusing on parents, I can't imagine a program of research where I'm not engaging adolescents and their parents as the powerful voices to instill change. So I think that's the one thing that I added that I would add is that the community voices are powerful, young people's voices are powerful and I think we're seeing that every single day just given the social circumstances in our society and how can we capitalize on that because we're only going to be able to address their needs if we ask them what they are. I like that. We do have to ask them what they are. You're so right, Marcus. Mental health issues, the stigma surrounding it, it's difficult. It's a difficult topic to have, but but we're also hearing that it's also hope. There's also hope, especially when um, treating kids because they're so very resilient. And this can literally translate to 
good agency when they become adolescents. So all is not lost as difficult as it is. Our conversation has certainly highlighted the need for mental health care, the things that schools can do, communities should be doing, parents should be doing, and even what we should be doing for ourselves to help us maintain good mental health and well-being. So thank you so much. It's refreshing talking to you and looking at solutions. And I am delighted to see and hear more about your work as that continues. And thank you to everyone for listening to this episode of On The Pulse. If you enjoy this podcast, please share with someone you know and subscribe to Apple, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. You can also find us on the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com slash nurse. Be sure to also check out our On The Pulse blog and Facebook Live series. You can learn more about the Johns Hopkins School of Nursing at nursing.jhu.edu.